Well, that song reminds us that it's not about our goodness. It's about God's goodness who chases after us when we don't deserve it, when we're incapable of getting the stand where it needs to be. This is a small stand when you got all this stuff up here, y'all. I've got my water, got the, had a cough that didn't want to go away, so I succumbed to Stefan's Ricola cough drop. And that stuff is bad, right? Mary Crumpton, my mother-in-law, says, if it's not bad, it's not good for you. Well, Buck, I'm trying to keep in my cheek. If it comes out, just... I'm on a clock, so do me a favor, just bring it up because we got to keep on going. So, <laughs> Good morning, everybody. It is so great to see you. It's so great to have, uh, whether you're here with us in the sanctuary or you're serving anywhere else around the facility or you're online, we're so grateful that you chose Father's Day to come together and worship together. So welcome. My name is William McLemore. I'm a lay leader here at Hallmark. And I'm so grateful that Pastor John asked me to continue going through our summer sermon series. I don't know if he came up with that phrase, but uh, our summer, it's tough with the cough drop in your cheek, right? <laughs> so we're continuing on with the summer sermon series. Two weeks ago, he covered Psalm 1. And then Sean Williford wonderfully covered Psalm 2 last week. So hang on, y'all. You got the third string guy covering Psalm 3 this morning. But, but that's okay, because we know it's the Holy Spirit that we're relying on to teach us. As we open up God's word to be able to take his word and apply it to what we're going through right then. And, that's, and we can rely on him to do that, right? Because God is good and all the time. Those aren't just words that we say often though, are they? You know, we've got to live that out. We've got to believe it because there are times when we're going through struggles and we're not sure how it's going to work out that we may start to doubt whether God is good. And this Psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm three, is going to give us some insight into how God is good. He's a good, good father and he wants to take us into his arms and help us through the struggles, to lift us up when we're going through difficult times. And this Psalm is gonna help us be able to see that. Well, first of all, I think it's uh, important that we remember whenever we're thinking about the Psalms, a couple of things. First, as Pastor John told us a couple of weeks ago, Psalms, most of the Psalms in the Bible were songs. They were intended to be sung. And second, they're in there for a purpose. They teach us about God, characteristics about God. And so when we're singing the songs or reading them, we should be thinking, God, what do you want to teach me about you? And one of the people that we see throughout the Psalms that we learn a lot about God from because of how he interacted with God and how God related to him was King David. Now, if I were to ask you, who was the best Old Testament king of Israel? Who would you say? Okay, some of y'all went the easy route and said David because I just talked about him. It's not King David, it's King Josiah. 
according to 2 Kings 22.2. Easy to remember if you want to look it up. But there are two places in the Bible that God described David as a man after God's own heart. So what was it about David? I mean, if we think about various aspects of his life, I mean, he was a prideful king at times. Like in 2 Samuel 24, when he ordered a census of the kingdom of Israel, perhaps to be able just to see how big his kingdom had gotten. But God had already told leaders, don't do that. And not only was David a prideful king, he also struggled because he was an adulterer. Non-consensual, if you understand what I'm saying. And related to that, he was a murderer. And on top of that, since it's Father's Day, there were plenty of times that David was not a good father, not a good husband. And so what was it about this man with all of these faults, with all of these difficulties, that God declared him as a man after God's own heart? Well, there's a couple of things. One, the scripture is very clear that that David wanted to do the right thing. And second, he usually was quick to ask forgiveness when he didn't do the right thing. He usually was quick to turn and to repent and let God turn his heart back to God. And so perhaps because of all those ups and downs and all those weaknesses, perhaps because of that, God used David to author almost half of the 150 Psalms that we have in the Bible. And that should give us hope. Because if God can use somebody like that to send the word of God out so that even today we're still learning from him, we're still hearing the word of God through what he penned, then God can use us. That there's nothing in our life that would keep us from God being able to use us if we, like David, are willing to repent, to humble ourselves, to let God turn our heart back to him. And we're gonna see this because one of the Psalms that David penned as that human author, God the divine author, but one of the Psalms is this Psalm three. Now, a lot of your Bibles actually have a text before verse one of Psalm three, a superscription. And it says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so this tells us not just that David was the human author, but also what was going on in David's life at the time that he was writing this psalm. And so if Absalom, the name Absalom doesn't ring a bell to you, you can actually go back and see when a king was fleeing a prince running away from his son, the prince. You can actually see that with David back in 2 Samuel 15. But to get a fuller picture of why this king would actually run away from his son, we have to go back even further. You see, Absalom was David's fourth son. Fourth out of 20, not counting daughters, And that was from over a dozen wives and concubines. And if you look at that family tree, that's that's actually more like a family orchard 
when you look at all of that, and I guess when you think about all of those wives and concubines, one thing, husbands, that's important to know is it's a good thing David was usually quick to ask forgiveness. He had a lot of opportunities to make a mistake. Some of y'all took a while. All right, so one of the times though that David was not quick to ask forgiveness was related to his sin with Bathsheba. And if we think about it, and we're gonna look at it, but it actually wasn't that sin that started the problem. David's problems actually started before that. We don't know exactly what was going on, why it started, but we actually do see it summed up in 2 Samuel 11, verse one, which reads, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David did what? David sent Joab, General Joab, and David sent his servants, and David sent all of Israel, the citizen soldiers that made up the military of Israel, he sent all of them to battle, but he didn't go with them. He sent them and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. You see, David was where he shouldn't have been. And because he was where he shouldn't have been, he got into trouble. How many of us can relate to that? We find ourselves in places we shouldn't be, hanging out with people that we shouldn't be hanging out with, on channels we shouldn't be, on websites we shouldn't be, at parties we shouldn't be, certain parties, you can come to our party, it's safe. But for those of you who've been there, right? But he was at a place that he shouldn't have been. He was back at the palace at a time when he should have been with his troops in battle. And because he was there looking out over his kingdom, that that's when he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And you know what? The sins started piling up after that because David saw her, lust of the eyes. He wanted her, lust of the flesh. And and because he's this all powerful king, he took her pride of life. And with all those sins piling up like that, he did so immediately. He wanted her then. He took her because he wanted that instant gratification. And folks, instant gratification rarely gratifies for the long term. And it rarely provides the godly growth that the Lord wants for us. David's son Solomon learned that same thing later. He committed some of those same sins, only if, if dad had a dozen wives and concubines, well, the son was gonna outdo dad by a lot. And so he had hundreds and hundreds, a thousand between wives and concubines. And late in Solomon's life, he penned Psalm, no, Proverbs 27, seven. One who is full, loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. And we've got a lot to learn from that. Because if we are not satisfied that the goodness of God is giving us everything that we need and we don't focus on that and are satisfied with all of his blessings, 
and we start searching elsewhere for that, then no matter how bitter something might be, it looks sweeter to us and we pursue it to our demise, to our hurt, our harm, and the harm of others. Predictably, therefore, in this example with David, all of those sins piled up to harden his heart such that he then went from forced adultery to murder. He killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and a great soldier of David's. And why would he do that? So that David could forcefully take Bathsheba as his wife. And I'd said this was an example where David didn't quickly repent because it was a year or more later that David still had not repented of all of these sins. And because God loved David and the nation of Israel so much, God sent his prophet Nathan to deliver a message to David, to confront David. And we see that confrontation in 2 Samuel 12. And it's so important to the background of Psalm 3 that we need to read a portion of it. And so starting in verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan, his prophet, to David. And Nathan came to David and said to David, there were two men. So Nathan is giving an account of something that's happening in the kingdom, but he's turning it into a names withheld, not to protect the innocent. And he says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He was poor. No doubt I had to save up for a long time to buy this lamb. And this poor man brought this lamb up and this lamb grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the poor man's morsels. Poor man probably didn't have a lot of food, but he's sharing it with this lamb. And he drank from this poor man's cup. And this little lamb would lie in this poor man's arms. And it was like a daughter to him. How many of you have a pet that you can relate to that? How many of you have a lamb that's a pet like that? My wife Rhonda has a friend at work. She has a pig that lives in the house and was a pet and would, is beyond me. But this pig would nibble on the toes of Rhonda's friend's husband. And so guess who left? No, it wasn't the man, the pig left. <clears throat> and came to our house, not in the house, out in the pen. And you know what they named him? Bacon. I, I kid you not, folks. Somehow we, yeah, we call it Macklemore's mini farm, but, and this pig is short, but it's still a stinking pig. And uh, I apologize if some of y'all have pigs that are pets. And so how did, how did the, where did I go? Verse four. So that was the poor man with his pet lamb like a family member. Verse four, now there came a, a traveler to the rich man. And back in the history or the tradition of those days, you got a visitor coming to your house. What do you do? What do you do? Come on, I know so many of you, you say, hey, can I get you something to eat? Something to drink? 
Uh, y'all in the back row, you need to be saying that. You're always food pushers and you know, you, that's the hospitality in them, right? You know, they're trying to feed people. And so that's how it was then. Traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling. The rich man was unwilling to take from one of his large flocks or herds to be able to prepare to slaughter one of his animals to feed the rich man for a feast. And so what did he do? Instead, because he was unwilling to do that, he took, he stole the poor man's lamb, the only one that he had, and prepared it. A kind way to say he slaughtered it for the traveler who had come to him. Nathan finishes telling David this account. And how does David respond in verse five? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. Uh, Whether he was going to die or not, verse six, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. What's the likelihood that four new lambs are gonna really take the place of this family pet so close? It was unlikely, right? And so David said, he proclaimed this judgment, this fourfold judgment that this rich man was gonna have to repay. And Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. You're that rich man, David. And thus says the Lord, now Nathan starts to speak for God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added so much more. Isn't that what God is like. He's a good, good father. He gives us all that we need. And so many times he also gives us the desires of our heart, unless those desires are going to cause us harm or cause others harm, like it was in this case with David. God didn't give Bathsheba to David. David stole her and he took her. And Nathan then continues by asking David in verse nine, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, her husband, one of his great soldiers. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and you've taken his wife to be your wife. You've stolen her, you've abducted her and you've killed him, Uriah, with the sword of the Ammonites. And now for God's proclamation, on judgment on David, verse 10. Now, therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Uh, Jump to verse 12. For you, David, did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Folks, how many times when we're doing something that we know we shouldn't, we're caught up in sin, we're trying to hide it, We think in our, not just our personal, but even in our private life, we can hide it. And God loves us too much to let us get away with that. Through his grace and mercy, he will continue working on our hearts. But if it hardens it and we keep getting further and further away from him, God will do what it takes to try and turn our hearts back to him. Even if it means public shame and embarrassment, 
just like he told David that he was gonna be doing. And so how did David respond? David, a man after God's own heart, of being faced with this, being confronted with it, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He owned up to it. He repented. He turned his heart back. And so Nathan continued with what God was saying. He said, the Lord also then has put away your sin, David. Just like David had said of the man in the account, he deserves death. David, who was that man, deserved death. But God said, because you have asked that forgiveness, I've put away death from you. But you shall, so you shall not die. And so while David's life was going to be spared, God still allowed a fourfold judgment to rain down on David's household. Just like David had proclaimed judgment on that rich man. That fourfold judgment started with the son, the first son of David and Bathsheba dying. But then there were three other sons of David who also died, were murdered. And one of those sons was Absalom. But before Absalom died, he tried to overthrow his father, King David, so that he, Absalom, could become king. And during that attempted coup, David, full of pain and anguish, but having turned his heart back to God, David gathered his posse and he fled the palace in order to spare Jerusalem the effects of the battle between divided forces of father and son. David was doing the right thing to flee his son to spare Israel. So he was doing the right thing, but on his way out of the city, people that had sided with young Prince Absalom started cursing David and those with him and started throwing stones at them. In other words, kicking him when he was down. Can you relate to that? When things feel so bad and so tough and so hard, somebody comes along and somehow makes it harder, makes it tougher. So when you think about that, when you think about how much God loved David, why did he allow those things to happen to David? Not just for judgment, but because God knows that he can bring all things together and work them out for our good and his glory, even when there is pain involved. That's because God wants to bring benefit from our pain. He will lovingly withhold that benefit until we've learned the lessons intended through the pain. So for a believer then, the point of pain is progress. That also then means that a painless life is pointless life, at least in terms of the godly growth that he wants for us. And for David, it was during this time of being on the run when more and more people were rising up against him, that God used David to write Psalm 3. And as we walk through this very short psalm in the few minutes that we have left, all that was intro. Please keep this background in mind and ask the Lord to let his word speak to your heart and to teach us more about him. So Psalm 3, verse 1. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. 
Selah. Remember, this is a song. That word Selah is a musical word that either means a pause in the song to emphasize something or a a crescendo, a a kaboom in my non-musical language, a crescendo to be able to emphasize something. So what is David trying to emphasize in these first two verses? Look at verse two again. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. David's emphasizing that the accusers all around him were saying that David's soul couldn't be saved. By application, that we can't be saved. That we can do things that are so bad that God can't forgive. Or that God gets so tired of us asking forgiveness for the same thing over and over that God will choose not to forgive us. That's what the accusers will say. How many times have you been faced with those kinds of accusations Hurtful things that people say. People that supposedly love you and yet they are hurting you or worse, hurting your family. And how many times have you had to pause because of that? That you've had to step back. You've started to doubt, God, are you there? Do you care? Do you hear me? Do you see what's going on? Say la. Well, in this Psalm, what breaks that pause? Verse three. Verse three says, but you, O Lord, but God, but God. Anytime you're reading through scripture, please, when you see but God, ask him, what are you gonna do, God? What are you gonna change? What are you gonna correct? What are you gonna put straight that's messed up? But you, O Lord, while the accusers are out there saying you can't be saved, you, O Lord, are shield about me. You're my glory and you are the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Now that's a crescendo. That's something that we should be shouting about that others should be able to hear from us. But do you see the picture here? Yes, there's gonna be times when we are beat down, when we are so upset, our shoulders are drooping and our head is hung low. And then Jesus comes with his loving hands. He puts this shield of protection around us. And in all of his glory, he stoops down to where we're at and he lifts our head. And what does he say to us? He said, I've got you. I will never leave you. And I will carry you through all of this pain because I've got something better for you. Even though others intend harm, I won't let this harm you permanently. Folks, is Jesus your shield? Is he the one that you go to for protection? Yes, he may use human people, human resources to be able to provide that protection. But is he the one that you go to first when crying out for help? And is he your glory? Or is your glory that that thing that you're most confident in, most proud of, is it your job? Is it your family, your talent, your status, something else? Selah, pause. And in this Psalm, what is it that breaks that pause? After this crescendo in verse four, it's verse five. Because 
of all these accusations going on around us, because God then puts this shield of protection around us, and because in his, all of his glory, he lifts us up our head, then David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Because he sustained me, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me and all around. So not only does Jesus lift us up and shield us, and not only is he our protector, but he also gives us that rest, that reassurance. Only there's no Selah after these two verses. And why is that? Because if we trust God to be that protection, to be that assurance for us, then even in the midst of battle, when we lay down, he will give us rest. He will give us that much needed time to recuperate. But sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we put our heads on that pillow and in the quiet of the night, our mind is racing over all of those concerns, over all those challenges. And we don't remember that he sustains us. So in those times when quiet won't come, how do we overcome that? Pastor John told us that two weeks ago. In Psalm 1, we are to meditate on God's word day and night. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Remember how good God is to us, how he'll never leave us or forsake us. And that's how he can bring that calm assurance to us. Well, how does David end this amazing psalm? Well, not quite like we would expect. Verse seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, that your blessing be on your people, by implication, not on my enemies. Emphasize that, Selah. Oh my, that took a dark turn, right? It doesn't seem to go. This is a song, right? You're singing all those wonderful verses and then arise, oh Lord, give my enemies a right cross and knock out their teeth. What? It, it doesn't fit, does it? And not just because of my bad singing. Why would God allow this Stay to stay in his Bible. Maybe because a lot of us can relate to David. That so often when the enemy and the accusers are hurting us and especially hurting our family, we want to see harm done to them. And you know what? I think that's actually why these verses are left in here. Because David, as he is pinning these things, he's not trying to put on some fake face and talking to God. He's not looking for just the perfect words to say in a prayer. He's just opening up his heart and bearing his soul to his creator. And folks, that's what God wants us to do, to have that kind of close relationship with him. Not a superficial one that's just met over times of food and activities and Sunday mornings, but an ongoing relationship where we can be ourselves, because that's what Jesus does. He accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. He loves us too much to leave us in our pain and our agony, and he wants to carry us through all of that to be able to strengthen us. My friends, Jesus is our shield. 
He's our glory. He's the lifter of our head. He is our savior. He's what you need in any and every circumstance in life. But you have to make that first choice. You have to be willing to humble yourself. And like David did, ask forgiveness for the countless things that you've done and turn to him and ask him to be your personal savior. That's a choice that each one of us has to be able to make. And if you choose not to, you're still gonna be facing these foes and these enemies on your own. But worse than that, worse than that, you're gonna leave your forever future in your own hands, which will make you helpless. Because Jesus doesn't want you to be helpless, he is making a way for you to be able to rely on him, to trust him, to be rescued from that helpless eternal future. So I'd like to ask everybody to stand now. Please stand and bow your heads. If you've never chosen and never accepted Jesus as your personal savior, or if what I'm talking about still sounds confusing, I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you've got questions, with everybody standing and every head bowed, if you've got questions, look up here. I'd like to ask you just to step out and come down and meet me down here in the front because I'd love to talk to you more about that. There's no better time to get your forever future figured out than right now.